Good morning, and it is truly a good morning, isn't it? I want to greet all of you with the joyous words which have already echoed this morning and are being said by believing hearts all over the world. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. If you're here for the first time or maybe it's been a while, I want to just warmly greet you on behalf of our Calvary Bible Church family. We pray today will be a blessing for you. We're so very glad you're here. And if you don't have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to take one of the pew Bibles and the pew rack in front of you. We're going to be studying uh, this morning 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and that's uh, towards the end of the Bible in the New Testament, and it's on page number 138. Uh, in the Pew Bibles. So we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 26, and then a few verses at the end of the chapter, uh, beginning on page 138 in the Pew Bibles. Now, before we read this marvelous passage together and kind of walk through it, I want to begin by asking you a question. Something I want you to consider. Are you a relational pragmatist? Are you a reasonable gambler? Or are you a redeemed believer? Why are you here this morning? I think there are three reasons, or generally three broad categories of reasons why people come to church on an Easter Sunday. And I think people representing all three of these reasons could be represented here today and frankly on any Sunday. All three of these types of people probably identify as Christians. They may look the same, talk the same. All three of these types of people go to church on Easter and Christmas, and perhaps many other times during the year. The question is, which one are you? Are you a relational pragmatist, a reasonable gambler, or a redeemed believer? What is a relational pragmatist? Well, this is someone whose family heritage is Christian, and you may even have some devoted Christians in your immediate family, and so it would create a little bit of discomfort or maybe relational dissonance if you were to formally reject Christianity or to leave it all together. And so to preserve quaint family traditions and in order to make those in your family happy, you self-consciously decide to identify as a Christian and to go to church at least occasionally, Christmas and Easter, maybe a few other occasions, or maybe even quite regularly. But truth be told, the real reason you're here has very little to do with Jesus. And it has a lot to do with making mom happy or grandma happy. It has to do with being religious enough to convince your wife or your girlfriend that you're spiritual, or it is just about wanting your children to grow up with some good moral values. Why are you here? Are you a relational pragmatist? 
Are you at church this morning because going to church on Easter is a family tradition? Or are you here today because you have personal faith in the resurrected Lord of all creation and have come here to worship Him in spirit and in truth? Are you a relational pragmatist? Secondly, are you a reasonable gambler? This is the person who's decided there's less risk in believing in God than in not believing. There's less potential risk and greater potential reward in believing in God than in not believing. And so this person is here just in case there really is a heaven and there really is a hell. After all, going to church and listening to beautiful music and you know, then some preacher, interesting or not, and walking away with a little fire insurance seems to be a wise move. This kind of thinking, by the way, is really common, and it even has a historical name. We call it Pascal's Wager. Blaise Pascal was a philosopher and mathematician who lived in the 1600s. And like a lot of people, Blaise wasn't really sure there was a God. He was drawn to Christianity, but he wrestled with a lot of doubt. Listen to what he wrote. He said, quote, if I saw no signs of a divinity, I would fix myself in denial. If I saw everywhere the marks of a creator, I would repose peacefully in faith. But Seeing too much to deny him and too little to assure me, I am in a pitiful state. And I would wish a hundred times that if a God sustains nature, it would reveal him without ambiguity. He felt caught in the middle. Seeing too much evidence that there is a God to deny him, too little evidence to believe. So, He had to solve this dilemma somehow, and so he turned to his philosophical and mathematical background and came to a conclusion that has come to be known as Pascal's wager. Now, I want to be fair to Pascal because his arguments were actually more complicated and sophisticated than most people think, but what I want to do is talk a little bit about the way his ideas have filtered down into pop culture and how kind of the man on the street may articulate this idea. Pascal's wager in pop culture is often summarized this way, quote, if I believe in God and I am wrong, I lose nothing. But if I don't believe in God and I'm wrong, I lose everything. This is the wager. If God doesn't exist, the same nothingness of non-existence awaits both believer and unbeliever after death. If the atheists are correct, there is no God, then the same nothingness awaits the believer and the unbeliever. But if God exists and there really is a heaven and a hell, belief makes the difference in where you will spend eternity. And so, the idea of Pascal's wager is that believing carries less risk than not believing. And so gambling on the existence of God is the smartest wager. Now, in one sense, this sounds pretty compelling. 
and it has been the basis upon which a lot of people have, quote, placed their bets on faith in God. I want to be a little nuanced here and say that I'm not against using this argument in pre-evangelism as a way to at least get someone to start thinking about faith. If used judiciously and properly, Pascal's wager can, and I'm sure in certain circumstances, be useful in getting someone to at least start thinking about their eternity. But what if a person gets stuck there? What if this is where they really land in their heart? Doubting, uncertain, trying to straddle the fence and just trying to see which of the choices carries less risk and greater reward. Well, one of the things I'll tell you is that as soon as persecution comes, the wager changes because it's not true and it hasn't been true for most Christians in most of history that believing in God costs them nothing. In fact, for many, it costs them everything. The early Christians gave their lives torn by wild animals in the Colosseums, burned as torches in Nero's gardens, imprisoned, persecuted, mocked, driven into poverty and away from their homes. But in the modern world, at least here, where we have peace and security, at least for now, it seems that Pascal's wager could be a safe bet. The person who goes in this direction doesn't really believe. They're just trying to minimize risk. Not really a believer, just a cautious and logical gambler, putting his money on the safe bet. This kind of person is just here to get a little fire insurance. He's not really interested in that whole loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength thing. Not really interested in that loving your neighbor as yourself thing. Not really interested in giving that your whole life to Christ thing. Just wanting to do the minimum to make it to heaven if there is a heaven. This kind of person thinks within themselves, quote, I, I want to be a good enough Christian to go to heaven if there really is one. But I definitely don't want to become some sort of religious nut that allows religion to dominate my whole life. Can I ask you, is that you? Are you just hedging your bets? Are you just a cautious gambler or are you a true believer? Have you given your whole heart, your whole life to Jesus Christ or are you just hedging your bets and doing the minimum to get a little fire insurance in case hell really exists? Saving faith, genuine saving faith is nothing like Pascal's wager. As we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 15, it's less like a wager and more like putting on a parachute and jumping out of a crashing plane. You have to either jump and put 100% of your trust in that parachute to save you, or you've got to decide that the plane isn't really crashing at all and just write it down. Faith is an all-in or all-out decision. And whether or not you believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, whether you really believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the key to knowing whether you are a relational pragmatist, a reasonable gambler, or 
And this is my prayer for you, a truly redeemed, genuine believer. We're going to see in 1 Corinthians 15 what it means to be a redeemed believer, what it means to believe the good news of the gospel. The word gospel means good news. What does it mean to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? I want to invite you to read along with me as we read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in this vitally important passage of Scripture, beginning in uh, chapter 15 and going all the way through the end of the chapter, we are going to see the gospel of Jesus Christ declared, defined, documented, and defended. The gospel declared, the gospel defined, the gospel documented, and the gospel defended. Let's look first at the gospel declared in verses 1 through 3. The apostle, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and he goes on to describe many others. I want you to notice the emphasis on the, on the words to you. I Make known to you, I preached to you, I delivered to you. In these verses it says that the gospel has been made known, it has been preached, it has been received, and it has been delivered, and it has been delivered to you. Paul said to Festus and King Agrippa when he was on trial, quote, the king knows about these matters. And I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. The life of Jesus and his miracles were done all over Israel and were well known. They were done publicly. He was crucified publicly. He was seen by hundreds after his resurrection and so Paul stands before this unbelieving king and says, I know you know about this. I know you've heard this. It didn't happen in a corner. I know that these things haven't escaped your notice. And I can say the same thing to you. I know that you've heard about Jesus. I know that these things have at least been around you. The question is, what will you do with the gospel that has been declared to you and is being declared to you right now? The gospel has been declared. 
It's been received. It's been delivered. It's been preached. It's been made known. Christ has sent his witnesses to declare the good news to all peoples. And you have heard it. Or if you haven't, you will before this message is over. So the question is, what will you do with what you have heard? The gospel is being declared to you. So what will your response be? Will you respond with indifference? Will you respond with unbelief? Will you respond with putting it off towards later? As a pastor, I know many people put off spiritual things until tomorrow, but tomorrow never comes. How will you respond to the gospel which is being declared to you? Will you respond with unbelief or belief? You see, the gospel is a message that requires a response. When it comes to the resurrection of Christ, he is either raised from the dead or he is not. There's no in the middle on that question. And it is something so impactful that how you answer that question determines how you will live, what you will devote your life to. You can't be in the middle on the question of whether Jesus Christ of Nazareth was raised from the dead or not. How will you respond to the gospel message? I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 17 to the Athenians as he's preaching in Athens. He tells them that the message demands a response. Acts chapter 17, verse 30. Having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Then he explains why. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. God has given proof to all of mankind that Jesus is the Savior by raising him from the dead. That proof has been given to you. It's been given to all mankind. What will you do with it? And Paul tells the Athenians, and I say to you also, that God now is declaring to all people everywhere that they must repent. This is a message which demands a response. You can't not respond to it. You will either reject the Lord Jesus Christ or you will receive him. You will either either believe in the resurrection or you will disbelieve in the resurrection. You will either enter the narrow road that leads to life or you will remain on the broad road which leads to destruction. What will your response be to the declaration of the gospel? After the declaration of the gospel in verses one through three, We see now that the gospel is also defined, declared in verses 1 through 3, and now now defined in verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the to the scriptures. This is the gospel defined. And notice that verse 3 says that the gospel is of first importance. 
There is nothing as important as the gospel, for no one is as important as Jesus Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, we read that Christ is to have first place in everything. Colossians 1 verse 13 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. First place in everything. This is the centrality of Christ. He must have first place in everything. Let me ask you if that is true in your life. Do you come to worship him only when the weather is poor so you can't go fishing? There's no travel ball to take your kids to. You happened to get a good night's sleep and don't feel the need to sleep in. Where is Christ in the prioritization of your life? Is he third, fourth, fifth, or is he first? He must have, the scriptures say, first place in everything. Is Christ and is his gospel of first importance to you? Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for sins, was buried, and rose again. I want you to also notice in these verses that the phrase, according to the scriptures, occurs twice. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is God affirming the authority of his word, the scriptures, the holy scriptures, the inspired word of God, the Bible. And this phrase, according to the scriptures, reminds us that the historical truth of the gospel can be clearly seen by anyone willing to objectively examine the evidence. And that evidence is found not only in creation all around us, but it is found in the Word of God, internal to the Scriptures. We know for an absolute fact, a fact that not even the most hardened skeptic can deny, that the Old Testament was written hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of Christ. And in the Old Testament, there are many specific prophecies about the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. When he would enter in his triumphal entry is prophesied by Daniel from the time of the decree of Cyrus, a date we know from external to Scripture sources. Where he would be born in Bethlehem is, was revealed. That 
there would be the murder of children in an attempt to kill him was revealed. Details about his life was revealed and certainly much about his death and his resurrection was revealed. I want to give you just a couple examples of Old Testament prophecies about the crucifixion of Christ. The first is, let me just read you a few verses from Psalm chapter 22. I'm going to read you Psalm chapter 22, verses 14 through 18. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is a prophecy of the crucifixion, including not only what Jesus would do, but what his enemies would say and do. Roman soldiers who didn't believe. Isaiah chapter 53 reveals to us why the Messiah would be crucified. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. See, he was dying for our sins according to the Scriptures. The fulfillment of prophecy is compelling evidence which cannot be dismissed and must not be ignored. Jesus was crucified. He was buried and raised to life according to the Scriptures, an exact fulfillment of prophecies made hundreds of years before. So the first thing the phrase, according to the Scriptures, reminds us of is the compelling evidence of fulfilled prophecy. And I want to ask you, if you are an honest thinker, if you are, examine the absolutely undisputable truth that the Old Testament was written hundreds of years before Christ, and then look at the dozens of specific prophecies related not only to Jesus and his followers, but also to his enemies who killed him, to places and times which no single person could control, and you will come to only one conclusion, and that is the conclusion written in the New Testament that these things occurred to fulfill the word revealed by God to the prophets. I think there's another implication of the phrase according to the Scriptures as it's repeated twice in 1 Corinthians 15, and that is this. The gospel is defined by Scripture. It is declared to us by witnesses, but it is defined by the Holy Scriptures. The Scriptures define the gospel. The Scriptures explain who Christ is and what He did for us. And anyone who deviates from the biblical definition of the gospel has departed from the Christian faith. 
The gospel has been defined. And if you depart from that definition, the scriptural definition, you're a cultist, not a Christian. The gospel has been defined according to the scriptures. And the core of the biblical definition of the gospel is the historical reality that Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose bodily from the dead. The gospel has been defined. Third, the gospel has been documented. In verses 5 through 11, we read, Christ appeared to Cephas, that's another name for the apostle Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. The gospel has been documented. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the best documented fact in all of ancient history. Not only do we have four separate independent written gospels which each contain multiple eyewitness testimonies, we also have the writings of the apostles, the eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And here, Paul mentions Peter and James by name and then informs us that over 500 saw the risen Lord at the same time and that most of those people were still alive when he wrote the book of 1 Corinthians. The gospel that has been declared by the apostles and defined by the scriptures has been documented by the eyewitnesses. And that documentation is what we hold in our hands. So now you have a choice to make. The gospel has been declared and defined and documented. So what will you do with that? And you have a choice to make. You must either believe that the early Christians faced lions in the Colosseum and were burned as torches in Nero's gardens for a lie that they knew to be a lie, or you must believe that they died for the truth. You must believe they were all crazy and died as fools or that they were truly eyewitnesses of something that changed their lives forever and was more important to them than life itself. Paul is going to argue in our fourth section that we need to consider carefully this testimony of the eyewitnesses and come to some life-changing conclusions. After the gospel is declared and defined and documented, now it is going to be defended in verses 12 and following. He says, now if Christ is preached, this is verse 12, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins." 
then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in its own order. Christ the firstfruits, and after that those who are Christ's at his coming. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom <clears throat> to God the Father. When he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Verse 12, Paul states that false teachers had arisen among the believers. They denied the resurrection, the resurrection of believers. And Paul says, the gospel is that by faith we are united with Christ. And just as we have been united with Christ in his death, we will be united with him in his resurrection. Christ was raised from the dead as the firstfruits, and after him will be the resurrection of all those who belong to him, he says. So how can you deny the resurrection? This was false teaching which had crept and seeped into the church. Jesus and the apostles continually warned against the dangers of false teachers. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 15, Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Beware of the false teachers, he says. Jesus repeats that warning in Matthew chapter 24, verses 9 through 14. He says, they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Beware of the false prophets. They will mislead many. A lot of people say, well, you know, if Christianity is true, why are there so many different variations and different this and different that? And how can I even know which one is the truth? You're noticing something. It's what Jesus warned about. There will be many false prophets. They will arise and mislead many. The apostles also warned about this. Second Peter chapter 2 the apostle warns that false teachers will arise. And listen to where they arise. He says, false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, 
even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Saying, look, there's going to be false teachers who arise from amongst the Christian community, and they will mislead many. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. And we see this in our day. People saying, you know, there's so many different versions of Christianity. It must mean none of them are true. The way of the truth is maligned because of these false teachers. Well, so how do we respond to that? Well, I want you to listen to what Jude says in Jude verses 3 and 4. He says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. See, there is the way of truth, the faith which was handed down to the saints once and for all times. And he says, verse 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So we have to contend earnestly for the faith. That's what Paul also said in his farewell address to the elders of the church in Ephesus. He says in Acts 20, verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. This is the great danger. So how do we avoid it? Well, the answer is in the next verse. He says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. How do you know the truth? Well, you commit yourself to God and to his word. And you follow what is written, not what is opinionated. The Lord and his apostles warned us that false teachers would come who would call themselves Christians but would deny key tenets of the Christian faith. So there are in our day false teachers who deny the incarnation. They deny the deity of Christ or they deny the humanity of Christ. But the fact that Jesus is God incarnate, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, is central to the gospel message because only God has the perfect righteousness required to enter heaven. But it is mankind who sin, and so it must be a human being who pays the price of sin. Therefore, it is only Jesus Christ who is fully God and fully man who could be the savior of the world. The false teachers who deny that deny the gospel itself. There are others who deny the atonement, that Jesus died as our substitute, paying the price for our sins. But Paul says, I delivered you what I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Deny the substitutionary atonement of Christ, and you have denied the whole gospel. 
Others deny the resurrection, that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. Others deny that salvation comes by grace through faith in Christ. And they teach that it can be gained by works or merit or by praying to other beings other than God. All of these are errors that we must avoid. In Corinth, verse 12 says there were false teachers who had convinced some of the people that there's no resurrection of the dead. And Paul spends the rest of the chapter defending the great gospel truth that those who believe in Christ will be resurrected by Christ. He says Christ has been raised. And because he has been raised, because he is victorious over death and the grave, all those who belong to him will also be raised. They have eternal life. I want you to look at how he ends 1 Corinthians 15. Look down at verse 50. This is the good news, truly good news. He says, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That is the glorious truth that we celebrate today, that through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we who belong to Christ by faith will be raised with him, imperishable, immortal, to live with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth where God will make all things new and there will be no more tears or mourning or crying or pain for he will make things new. And he says, behold, I am faithful and I am true. I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. So what is then the response of the believing heart? Last verse of the chapter, verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. See, our service of Christ, the fact that we live for him, that we've given everything to him, that he has been given first place in everything in our lives, that is a life purpose which is on a solid foundation, the foundation of the resurrection of Christ. So abound in the work of the Lord is the apostle's message to us. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 has been declared, defined, documented, and defended. So the question is, what will you do with it? Are you a relational pragmatist? If so, Jesus has something to say to you. If you're only here because someone else wants you to be here, 
I want you to listen to what Jesus says specifically to you. This is from Matthew 10, verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. You need to love Jesus more than even you love your family members. You need to be here for him, not just for them. Are you a reasonable gambler? Just hedging your bets, just doing the religion thing in case there really is a heaven and a hell. If so, the Lord Jesus has something to say specifically to you as well. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 15, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. But because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. There's no middle ground. This is all in or all out. And if you're not all in, that means you're all out. Are you a relational pragmatist, a reasonable gambler, or are you a redeemed believer? The good news is that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And Jesus has said that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Oh, dear friend, our dear and honored guests, have you repented of your sins? Have you believed the good news? of the death of Christ for your sins, his burial, and his resurrection, which defeated the power of sin and death. As the worship team comes, I wanna encourage you to consider who you really are. And if you are not a truly redeemed believer, I wanna invite you to make this the day in which you become a true believer. Romans chapter 10, verse nine says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then the great promise goes out that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I'm gonna pray that today that it will be what happens in your heart by the grace of God. Lord, we thank you that you died for our sins according to the scriptures, that you were buried and that you were raised on the third day according to the scriptures. I pray that every heart will believe that you were raised from the dead and every mouth will confess that you are Lord, that those who don't know you as Savior and Lord, who don't have a personal relationship with you, will cry out to you and call on your name. And we thank you for the promise that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We give you praise, glory, and honor, our living Lord. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.